Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Teaching his disciples, it's not just about you. Yes, I've chosen you, I've empowered you, I'm enabling you, I'm using you, but it's never gonna be about you. It's about the message and it's about the one that sends us with the message. And so he's going to take the same spirit that he empowered the 12 with and put it on 70. He's gonna take the same mission he had given to the 12 and give it to the 70. Today we have a new two-part study from Pastor Sam entitled, The Lord of the Harvest. As we move into chapter 10 of the Gospel of Luke, we will start with the first five verses today, considering the sending out of the 70 disciples in groups of two. So let's listen in. Luke chapter 10, we're looking at the first 24 verses, title of our study, The Lord of the Harvest. Luke 10, The Lord of the Harvest. This chapter begins with the words, after these things. They, of course, point us back. Well, what things is he referring to? Could be all the things up to this point, but I think specifically some things that were recorded by Luke for us in chapter 9. There was the feeding of the 5,000. There was the uh, transfiguration. There was the desperation in the valley below. There was the confusion of Jesus' disciples as, well, the 12 wrestled with the issue of someone who wasn't one of them, but was actually actually doing the work of God. And they were like, cease and desist. You know, this can't be. And Jesus is like, hey, if they're not against us, they're with us. They're for us. We also saw the confusion of James and John as they uh, offered to go trump on, uh, on the Samaritans and uh, fire them for Jesus. And uh, of course, he says, uh, you don't know what spirit you're of. The Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Now, as we get into chapter 10, we see Jesus well, I think in a very practical way, teaching his disciples, it's not just about you. Yes, I've chosen you, I've empowered you, I'm enabling you, I'm using you, but it's never gonna be about you. It's about the message and it's about the one that sends us with the message. And so he's going to take the same spirit that he empowered the 12 with and put it on 70. He's gonna take the same mission he had given to the 12 and give it to the 70 with this small change. The 12 had primarily been ministering to their Jewish brethren. These were the folks that had the scriptures. They knew Messiah was coming. They had an expectation that the Lord would send a savior. Now we're moving from the area of Capernaum in the north, the Sea of Galilee, down through Samaria toward Jerusalem. And as they're traveling, he's going to, well, we read it here. He appointed 70 others, verse 1, also sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. So get the picture. They're in the north. They're heading south. That means they're going through Samaria. Now, immediately we're confronted with something oh so practical. James and John aren't exactly the guys for this mission. They're the ones who already expressed their willingness to kill people for Jesus. And, you know, you're not going to really see that T-shirt and, and have it approved by the Lord, you know. And, and so Jesus says, in essence, hey, I've got others. I can use others. I, I do think it's important that as we look at the things he says to the 70, that we realize the 12 would have been right there. They would have been listening in for sure. Peter, James and John would have been privy to these conversations and, and, and this opportunity. So he appoints or ordains 70 others. It's essential that we get this. 
Ordination comes only from the Lord. This kind of appointment to ministry, it's the work of the Lord and not man. And whenever we mix that up or think, well, if we get the schooling or if we get this or we do this, well, it's never again going to be about us. It's him working through us, even as he's worked for us and in us. And so he ordains, what's our part? Well, we can ratify, we can confirm the ordination of someone. And, and how would we do that? We would observe their life. And we would say, we see the godly character that's an essential for someone who represents the Lord. We see the faithfulness that he says is absolutely essential if we're going to represent the Lord. We see the fruit, love and joy and peace and long suffering and kindness and goodness and self-control and such that, that will enable someone to rightly represent the Lord. So he ordains and we ratify. He calls and we say, hey, we see the calling. We see what the Lord's doing in your life. Well, Something else. They are going to be following in the footsteps of John the Baptist. His ministry, point people to Jesus, prepare people for the coming of Jesus. Before he even realized Jesus was the Christ, he was telling people to repent, side with God against yourself, confess you're a guilty sinner and prepare for the coming of the Lord. Then John comes on the scene preaching, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now he's been imprisoned, ultimately beheaded, the 12 have gone out into the mission field and Jesus looks and he says, I need to keep multiplying this. So he grabs 70 people, no doubt men of good character who were faithful and leading fruitful lives. And, and he ordains or appoints them and he sends them out two by two. This is oh so practical. I would encourage you if you're serving the Lord and you're doing it in some area where you're doing it alone to find someone to partner with. Why? Ecclesiastes says two are better than one. Why? If you fall into a pit, the other's there to pick you up. And I want to tell you in the midst of serving the Lord, there's a few pits. Wise man sees the pit and avoids it. I'm not always wise. I've been down a few times. And to have a partner alongside to say, hey, let me lift you back up. And, and, and so he sends them out two by two. There's protection. There's accountability. I, I've noticed personally that I'm more focused if I'm on a missions trip. Well, I never go on a missions trip alone. I try to take as many people as I can when I do. But, but there have been times where I've traveled and met up with others. I just do better when I'm with someone else. My mind wanders. I'm a little bit beyond. Well, I just thought I was spaced out. Now, I'd, if I were growing up in this generation, I'd be diagnosed with something. But I mean, I sat in school and just drummed on my desk and looked at the clock and waited for the day to get over for, you know, pretty much all of my school years. And I found out when I was in college, there were pianos in the piano room. And then I didn't even go to class. I just went and played piano. But my point is this. I do better with someone alongside and you will, too. So, so he puts them together two by two, sends them to prepare people for his coming. And that's our mission today. We can actually point them back to the cross. These guys didn't have that advantage. We can say, not only is Messiah coming, Messiah came. He suffered and died for our sins. He was buried, he rose again, he's ascended into heaven. But this same Jesus is coming again. We saw it in our overview of Acts this past Wednesday night. Well. Again, this is our mission. Prepare people for the coming of the Lord. He tells them and he speaks to us. Verse two, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He tells them to pray. And 
I got to tell you, I have again seen when Jesus wants me to do something or you to do something or us to do something, he'll first move us to pray. And then he does something kind of unique. He tells them to pray that God would send workers into the harvest because it was a great harvest. We'll talk about that. There was a great need for workers. But he says, start with prayer. Don't just go. Pray. Pray for what? Specifically that God would raise up others. He knew the 12 and the 70 wouldn't be sufficient. And I don't know if you're aware of this because we do so many services, kind of as neat in a way, because it, it gives us a chance to gather in these smaller groups. And so it doesn't seem so huge and overwhelming. But there are hundreds of people that serve the Lord throughout the various, well, my five services a week. And, and in the midst of that, I was thinking if every single person serving had one partner, and those two just prayed together regularly for the ministry they're engaged in and prayed for God to raise up others for the ministry. How much more effective would we be? How much more directed would we be? Well, the harvest is great, he says. The laborers are few. That was true in that day. It's true in our day. There will always be a need for more because there are so many lost and hurting people and so many young in the Lord who need to be taught, who need an example, who need a big brother in the Lord. The other thing I've learned is that when the Lord moves me to pray and I pray in accordance with his will, he always answers yes. I mean, if you're one of those people who wants to hear yes when you pray, pray what the Lord is moving on your heart to pray. He gives you the burden you pray it. And then in their case, and I do appreciate this too, he sends them out in answer to their prayer. Have you noticed he does that as well? And it's, it really makes my point. He gives you a burden. You begin to pray for people and he says, I can use you to reach him. Oh, I don't know, Lord. We're so like Moses. I'm not really a talker. Or I don't know if I could really do that. Or, or like Gideon as the Lord appears to him and says, hey, mighty man of God. And he's looking around like, you're talking to me? Because Gideon didn't see himself that way. And you don't need to see yourself as some super saint with super potential. You just need to know God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. Well, this harvest he speaks of was going to be a spiritual harvest. But as he often did, he likens it to something they saw every year. They would have a great harvest. There would be a great festival to celebrate the harvest. It was called the Feast of Harvest. That makes sense to us. It was also, though, called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast, we know it as the Feast of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people come to the Lord, added to this group of 120 that were meeting there in Jerusalem in an upper room. 3,000 people surrender their life to the Lord and trust their future eternally to him. And they do it based on this simple proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of God, that there is life and forgiveness in his name. He died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. He offers us pardon and forgiveness of sin. Well, a harvest then in Israel always led to a great celebration. Of course, the day of Pentecost for, for the nation of Israel and for the uh, church there in Jerusalem, a great celebration. But, but when we went through Luke in our survey, and we'll come up to it in a few weeks, Luke 15, we'll find that there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents the 99 just persons who need no repentance. There's a great celebration that takes place when one 
person surrenders their life to the Lord. So that the, we need to get the picture. Yes, the harvest is great, but it's not just a mob or a mass of people. It's individuals, your next door neighbor, sometimes the very people living in your house with you. Those people at work or at school or, or, or those people that live in the neighborhood or that you buy your groceries from or, or interact with in some other way. The celebration would certainly come. And, and then Jesus gives us some insight into yet another harvest. This harvest brings separation. There's glory in it and joy and there's also weeping and, and, and devastation. Why? He tells us the parable of the wheat and tares. It's in Matthew 13. You don't have to go to it, but the gist of it is this. He says that... Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And then while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. When the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, the tares also appeared. And the servants of the owner came and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? How does it have tares? He said, An enemy has done this. And the servant said, Do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest you gather while you gather the tares up, you uproot the wheat with them. Let them grow together till the harvest. At the time of harvest, I'll say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, I want to share Jesus' explanation of that because if you don't fully get it, you're in good company. The disciples didn't understand. They said, could you explain that to us? And I'm grateful for that because then we know exactly what he was trying to teach them and teach us. But I do want to share one thing he won't explain to them. And, and I think it's important to us, important to us today. He says, I don't want you to, to go and, and try to do this harvest because you could uproot the wheat while you were pulling out the tares. The idea is they're growing together side by side in the same field, sometimes, you know, close enough to be interlocked. So it'd be very difficult on a physical level to pull out all of the tares and not uproot some of the wheat. On a spiritual level, and that's, of course, what he's trying to teach, not just, hey, here's an agricultural lesson, but an agricultural illustration. So what's he trying to teach us spiritually? That we're not in a position to harvest, not in that sense. We can be involved in the harvest where we preach the gospel, where we plant the seed of truth, where we call people to repent of their sin and come to Jesus. We get to do that. We see it happen week after week and month after month and year after year. But, but this particular harvest at the end of the age, well, that's when he says we don't want to get engaged in. And here's why. Again, we can't really tell the difference between someone who says they're a Christian and someone who really is a Christian. For that reason, if you tell me you're a Christian, I'll believe you. If you tell me you're a Christian and you're living in a way a Christian shouldn't, I'll confront you. I won't tell you you're not a Christian. I won't because I can't know that. I can say your behavior or those attitudes or, or these words are inconsistent with the profession of faith. Does that mean the person who does things that aren't in, in accordance aren't Christians? Hey, again, we can't know that. And, and perhaps the clearest illustration of this is in the life of King David. You're familiar with him. He's most well known as a young man for standing up to and taking on Goliath. And listen, if you were hanging out with David in the days of Goliath, you'd say, there's God's man. He loves the Lord. He trusts the Lord. The Lord's using him mightily. For sure, he's a man after God's own heart. But what if you were hanging out with him in the days of Bathsheba? You'd be like, man, he's an adulterer. He, he had her husband murdered. There's no way this guy knows or loves the Lord. Well, that's see my problem and yours as well. 
We see life in snapshots. We look at what's happening today or this week or this month. And we're not in a position to judge the heart. Only God can do that. And he doesn't just remember the past or see it accurately. He doesn't just see the present, but he knows the future. So my exhortation and encouragement to every one of you, be a part of that first harvest by planting the seed, by praying for the lost, by loving on people around you, by proclaiming the gospel, but let the rest of it be left to the Lord. Now listen to Jesus' explanation. He who sows the good seed is the son of man. So he says, he's the one sowing the seed. The field is the world. The good seeds are the son of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. What's this telling us? That God has planted us right where we're at. And the purpose of planting us in our neighborhood, in our job, at school, wherever we are, is that we could bear fruit for him. That, that, that we would grow up and mature and, and be used by him. So he says, um, the harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Their tares are gathered and burned in the fire. So it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. Take note of that phrase, practice lawlessness. We'll come back to it. Casting them into the fire, a furnace of fire. There'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth and the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him here. So our Lord is saying that he has planted us and the enemy has planted those around us that don't belong to him, that are tares. They act and speak and pretend to be something they're not. We'll come back to that. And, and of course, the exhortation in scripture isn't try to figure out who's not real, but to make sure you're for real. Make your calling and election sure. Be sure you're in the faith. Well, verse three, he tells these 70, go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Now, this is perfectly fitting. He's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It would make sense that we would go out if we're representing him as he came. And if you read through the passages in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, that speak to the reality of the lamb, You'll see that, well, what you can see in nature is true of Jesus, that the lamb came and was non-threatening, non-violent, non-intimidating, non-manipulative. You're never going to see a bunch of wolves saying, oh, look out, here comes the lambs. Or at least you're not supposed to see the wolves fearing the lambs. But, you know, there are some people training attack sheep out there and, and they got the Lambo thing going, you know, and... Uh, and so James and John, don't they fit that description perfectly? Wouldn't they be too? That, that if you had to say, hey, these guys are all mixed up on it. And so what does Jesus do with them? He rebukes them and then he instructs them. He gives them an example. Remember, these guys are headed, the 70, down into Samaritan territory. The very people James and John would have done in if they had the ability to. Well, the, the, the point here is that we're to be as the scriptures tell us, as wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. Their mission and ours, difficult and dangerous. Lambs among wolves. What do you expect to happen if you realize, man, I'm out here defenseless? I have to trust the Lord. I have to rely on him, not just for what, salvation, but for protection. And now we're gonna see for provision. And it turns out that as we go to represent the Lord, he wants us to rely upon him for everything. He doesn't want us to have it mostly together and need a little of him to get over the hump. 
He wants it to be all about him so that it's clear to everyone. Hey, they have no power. This has to be the power of God. They have no authority. This has to be the authority of God. They have no protection. God must be protecting them. They have no provision. God must be providing for them because we're testifying of him. We're representing him. So he goes on to say, carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals and greet no one along the road. He's simply telling them in verse four to travel light. This makes a lot of sense. If you don't have money, no one can rob you. If you don't have resources, well, you don't have to replenish them when they begin to run out. In other words, go out and trust me to provide for you. That's exactly what he's saying. Now on a practical level, I've learned whether it's a missions trip or just a family trip, traveling light is definitely the way to go. First time Pam and I ever went on a missions trip together, just the two of us, well, with 50 Japanese students that we were taking back to Japan who'd been here in the United States for a month with us. We're traveling back to Japan and we get to Japan and our hosts pick us up and they come to pick us up and, and they look and they're like, oh, and it's like we had so much luggage, they had to get a second car just to load our luggage. They thought we were gonna stay, I think, because they, you know, we had more stuff than some of them had in their houses. And we thought, well, we need all this stuff because we're gonna go there and minister. Turned out I could have done fine with one suit and two shirts and, you know, some undergarments that could have been washed out because it's a lot easier to do that, especially in a humid and hot place like Japan, than to carry along, you know, all this luggage. And every time we went from one place to another, everyone looked at all that stuff like, I can't believe you brought all this stuff. Now, I do want to give you a praise report, and that is we recently, Pam and I did a missions trip back to Washington, D.C. It was a shorter trip, but we traveled only with carry-on luggage. And hey, that's really saying something. And, uh, you know, I kind of, I was easy on her last night. I said it was our luggage. I made the mistake first service of saying it was mostly her luggage. I didn't know she'd be listening to the radio. And, and then I see her, you know, and she's like, mostly my luggage, eh? And, well, she didn't say it like that. She said in a real sweet way how girls do, you know. But but the deal is it was our luggage and, and we were both unsure about what we need. And and to go back, it's just so good to travel light, to be able to carry it all on. This is a side note. If you're ever going anywhere and you're going through Chicago, really good to bring mostly, if not all, carry on. Notorious for losing your luggage, but that's another story. It's sort of one of those things where you get a practical tip uh, out of the midst of the study. Well, we see then his plan. He anoints and empowers, ordains and sends out the 70. He says, partner up and then be praying and then go preaching and, and, and be gentle and, and like lambs among wolves. Realize there's danger. You can trust me to care for you. You can trust me to provide for you. That latter part of verse four is a little bit strange. It says, greet no one along the road. And, and it's sort of the other side of the coin for something that's gonna be very useful and, and a benefit to him. And that's the great hospitality that was exercised there in the East in the first century and really continues to be exercised by many here in the 21st century. It's hard for us to imagine a culture where if you came to town, lots of people would just open their doors and take you in, but that's how it was in those days. So he's saying, be careful on your mission not to get distracted, not to get, well, Here's what had happened. You'd be walking down the road. Somebody say, hey, it's hot. Come on in and let's have some tea. And then let's, hey, let's kill a lamb and let's have a dinner. And, and pretty soon you've spent a week there and, and that wouldn't have been unusual. So he's saying on this mission, I want you to be 
focused, goal-oriented. And, and so sometimes people's good intentions, just their exercising hospitality could actually be a hindrance to those guys accomplishing the mission that they were sent to accomplish. I've had many conversations over the years with folks who honestly wanted to know one thing. What is God's will for my life? They seem to be waiting for a burning bush or waiting for the church or waiting for someone that they consider more spiritual than themselves to send them out. Well, honestly, they already have their instructions, as do we all. They are written in the following passages in the Bible, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, Mark 16, 14 through 18, Luke 24, 44 through 49, John 20, 19 through 23, and Acts 1, 4 through 8. We call it the Great Commission. Mark 16:15 says, Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In the original Greek, go into all the world means as you go. As you go to work, as you go to the store, as you go about in your neighborhood, as you go about in the areas where you have influence, you see God has put you there for a reason. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.